Last week we had our family meal and so we, we weren't in Ecclesiastes last week and so maybe you might be wondering, wait a second, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, everything's meaningless and pointless. That's right. The very depressed man a long time ago hated life and wanted you to feel just as bad as he did. That's basically, no, I'm kidding. That's, that's really not what Ecclesiastes is. It's what it can seem like at sometimes, but really there's something much deeper going on there. And so uh, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, or the, the voice that we're hearing as we read from Ecclesiastes, the word used there is koheleth, which means you could, you could translate it as preacher or teacher. It's a person who gathers people together to speak and to share and to teach to them. And for a long time, it's been believed to be Solomon, although as we've gotten more information in church history and uncovered more things, most theologians now are actually moving away from that idea that it likely was not Solomon, but somebody much later, after Israel didn't even have a king, uh, when they were in captivity. And it would be kind of like me calling back to, man, if, if George Washington saw this, he would say, you know, something like that. And so what, what he's doing is he's using this very common, actually, in that time, Jewish literary tactic to draw on the wisdom of the picture of someone in a high prestigious place, uh, a king over Israel, one who's very wise. And he's using that literary tactic to say, listen, this is important. And so what he does is he starts wrestling through the stuff of life that the people of God were going through at that time. And much of it is the same stuff of life that you and I are dealing with today. And in order to really get a true, accurate picture of what Koheleth, the, the preacher, is wrestling through, we need to remember where he's at in the story, right? If you remember, we, we said a couple weeks ago that really Ecclesiastes is wrestling with trying to make sense of Genesis 1 and 2, creation, in a Genesis 3 world where things have gone terribly wrong. And so we have our six story symbols up there. Help me out a little bit, okay? What does our first symbol represent, this down arrow? Creation, yeah, good job. Creation, that God comes down to earth. He, he creates earth. He comes down to earth and he creates humanity. He creates beasts of the land and birds of the air and fish of the sea, and he, he's actually there, involved with it. Actually forms man, the first man, with his hands. Breathes his own life into him. Walks and talks with the first man and woman. It's a beautiful thing, right? This is what the preacher knows is true about the story of the world. This is the foundation. This is how it got started. And everything was good. And God created man with a purpose to care for everything under the sun. As God's representative, man and woman, made in his image, were to care for everything God created under the sun and to be a picture of what God is like to the rest of creation. And so God creates this earth with this huge potential and he puts this unique creature there, humanity, with this wonderful purpose to cultivate the flourishing of all things, to draw out the potential of all things. And then what's the second symbol there? Rebellion, right? Yeah. 
something goes terribly wrong. And that's that humanity rebels against their purpose, their calling to care for all things under the sun as representatives of God. Instead choosing, no, 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 no. I want to care for me and put myself in the place of God. And so humanity rebels against their creator, but not only that, rebels against the purpose God had created them for. And because of that, everything under the sun starts breaking apart and decaying. Not just mankind, but everything that we were called to care for starts falling apart too. And God comes, though, and he says, I am going to make this right one day. He gives a promise, right? And that's our third symbol. We, we sometimes call it promise, or you could call it Israel, because what God does in Genesis is he comes and he says to first the first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, I'm going to send someone to make this right, to crush the head of the serpent. But we see that even more fully when he comes in Genesis 12 to Abraham, right? And he says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will make a great nation out of you, and I will bless you so that your nation will be a blessing to the other nations. Restoring this purpose, right, of bringing flourishing and drawing out the potential throughout the world. And so this is a timeline that, this is a spot in history that Ecclesiastes finds itself, that the preacher is living in. This period here in that third symbol of awaiting for this promise to come. And he hasn't yet seen that promise come in our fourth symbol, what we know to be redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So he's wrestling with this world, knowing it was created good, things have been broken, but there's a promise that it will be made right again. And just to kind of jump ahead a little bit, because Ecclesiastes can be depressing if we don't understand this. At the very end, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he ends with this. After surveying all of the meaningless things of life, all the chasing after a wind underneath the sun, and he says this. The end of the matter, verse 13. All has been heard. Basically, I've said everything there is to say. And his conclusion is, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ultimately, at the end of the day, God is still in control of his good creation. And he will return and he will make all things right. Everything will come under subjection to him as it is supposed to be. And so, we do have a hope that we hold out for, but before we get to that conclusion, that's weeks ahead, we have to first wrestle with the same things that the preacher is wrestling with in chapters three and four, okay? So I'm gonna pray. Like I said, I'll read chapter three, and then we're gonna break up chapter four into four parts, and so I just need four of you to read, and there's only a few verses each, okay? And so when we get there, I'm just gonna ask someone to read these verses, and whoever does it, does it. And if you don't do it, we'll sit here for all day long, okay? So be prepared. All right. Father, we, uh, we come before you and just come before you humble, humbled, as we have all experienced the striving after wind, 
pursuing our own wants and desires, trying to achieve things for ourselves, trying to make our name great. And I think every single one of us have seen that fail time and time again. And if we haven't, we will. And so God, we recognize that we have abandoned our purpose that you have given to us. And you have called us to something higher and you have called us to yourself. And we pray, God, that this morning as we are digging into your word, the words that you inspired by your spirit to someone to write thousands of years ago, that your spirit would make it very much alive to us today, teaching us, shaping us, forming us in our hearts, our souls, and our minds, that we may look more and more like the people you have created us to be. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of your spirit, we ask these things. Amen. Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 16, he has been talking about how there's been a time and a season for everything, and all these things will pass. Everything under the sun will fade away. And he says, verse 16, I'm I'm actually going to be, this is part of the joys of multiple readings. We're going to hear different translations. We'll find out who's still reading the King James Version. Uh, We have up on the screen the NIV, and I have in my hand the ESV, and so we're just going to roll with it, right? And we'll figure out what different words mean. Verse 16, moreover, he says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I'm going to pause right there. He says, I saw in the place of. He's looking around and he sees everywhere that there is wickedness. But he says it's in the place of justice, in the place of righteousness. The preacher is recognizing that there is supposed to be something better, right? He's recognizing, just like you and I recognize every time we get on Twitter or we turn on the news or we just step outside our front door, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Something has gone terribly wrong. He's recognizing that there has been a conflict bringing brokenness into the story, but he knows it's supposed to be something different, right? And I think every single one of us has that longing in our heart for something to be better because we know we were created for something better. In the place of justice, in the place of righteousness, Those things have been stripped away from what he sees. And something has been put in place of it. And he calls that wickedness. And a lot of times, as people who are trying to follow God, who are trying to walk in the ways of righteousness and of justice, when we see this wickedness, sometimes it's too much for us to bear, right? And so sometimes we have a tendency, at least if you're anything like me, I have a tendency to just kind of ignore that and push that away. To step away from that and pretend that it has nothing to do with me so that I don't have to deal with the wickedness that is there. Because really, what could I do anyway, right, as one person? 
does, does it even matter? Is it meaningless, as he would say? And so why would I even engage in that? And I, just to give you an example, and don't worry, we're not going to get political this morning, but it's very much part of our world under the sun, isn't it? To which God has called us to care for. And so as an example of something I've been just trying to like ignore is politics. A recent example is the case going on with Brett Kavanaugh. And as you have all this going on, I'm like, I am so tired of seeing Facebook posts. I'm so tired of seeing Twitter posts. I'm so tired of hearing people talk about it at parties that I go to. I don't know what happened, and it's not for me to judge what happened. But here's where I was convicted, is there is an obvious injustice going on to create a situation like this. And if I think that I can just step away from that and not engage in my culture as one who is bearing the image of the God who created it, then I am failing to live in my purpose. Half of the world is calling a woman they've never met a liar, and the other half of the world is calling a man they've never met a rapist. And none of us really know what happened, right? But how can I, as a faithful follower of Christ, as one made in the image of God, the creator, how can I step into that and not try to judge something that's not a matter for me to judge, but how can I step into that and address the areas of brokenness that have led up to it? Address the fact that we are sinful liars and we don't know who to trust. And also address the fact that our culture has set up this system that often does diminish victims and their claims. And if you don't believe me, here's a, another example. In 2010, there's a man by the name of James Taylor, not the American singer-songwriter who sang uh, Toy Stories, You Got a Friend in Me. A black man in Missouri who's poor, who was pulled over and they found immeasurable amounts of crack cocaine on him. And when I say immeasurable amounts, I don't mean so much. I mean so little that they could not even weigh it on a scale. And that was enough to get him 15 years in prison. Now, you say, yeah, he shouldn't have had any on him, and I agree. But if we contrast that, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes is often contrasting things, if we contrast that with someone else around the same time, a rich white woman named Paris Hilton found with over a gram of crack cocaine who got slapped on the wrist with a little community service. And we go, wait a second, that doesn't seem just. That's what he's talking about when he says, I look around and in the place of justice, wickedness was there. And if as I'm talking about these social issues right now that we don't often talk about up here on Sunday mornings, you're starting to feel uncomfortable, then you're feeling just a little bit of what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is feeling. As he's looking around, a man who is representing a rich king who had the ability to try his hand at all different pleasures of life to see if they would satisfy him, someone who's not oppressed, but looks around and with the wisdom of God sees that oppression is taking place, injustice is taking place, and it makes him uncomfortable too. And he wrestles with that and goes, what are we to do? This seems meaningless. How do we engage in this now as faithful witnesses to a God who cares for all creation?
and calls us to do the same. And thankfully, he reminds us in verse 17, as he reminds himself, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, both. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. There is a time for every matter and every work, and there is a time coming when God will come and make all things right. But how do we point toward that even here and now? We're only two verses in. Don't worry, that's the heaviest of it all, I think. Maybe, we'll see what the Spirit does. So in verse 18, he starts to recognize, because of this wickedness, because of the injustice, he starts to recognize something about mankind. And this is what he says. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts anyway, for all is vanity. Or as we've been reading in the NIV, meaningless. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who could bring him to see what will be after him? I recently overheard my kids talking, playing with our dog, Millie. And you guys have heard me talk about Millie before. I'm not a big fan. Um, so they're talking about Millie. I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. But then Liam starts crying out to me. He's like, Dad, Dad, can you believe what Jonas just said? I'm like, what did he say? And he goes, Jonas said that he loves you more than he loves Millie. That's not right. And I was like, I hope he loves me more than he loves that mangy dog. I, I feed him. I take care of him. I clean up after his mess. Millie just goes around shedding and pooping everywhere. Like, he better love me more. But we got to have this really good conversation and uh, sit them down and talk about the different unique roles that God has created in his creatures. And how that doesn't mean that we don't love other creatures, but it, it means that there is a unique role, right? And so I, I talked about, you know, the way that I love mom is different than the way I would love any other woman in our church family, right? And it should be. And in the same way, Jonas is allowed to love me, his dad, in a way that is greater than the way he loves our dog, right? And I took them back to the beginning of the story. I said, do you remember when God made all things and he made man? And he said, I'm going to make a helper for this man. And he makes every beast, every animal, and he presents them before the man. And he even gets to name all of them. And so he's got this intimate, caring relationship for them. He's supposed to care for them, watch over them, protect them, and name them. But there was not a suitable helper found in them. And so God, out of the man himself, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, forms another person, the woman. And they are joined together as one, and there's a special, unique relationship between them, right? But they both carry the same purpose 
of watching over and caring for the other creatures in the garden. And so we, we talked through that a little bit, but then what happened? Then what happened is that both the man and the woman rebelled against this purpose of caring for God's good creation, for all the other creatures, for the very earth itself, rebelled against God, and because of that, not only did death start coming to the man and the woman, but it also came to the animals that they were to care for. It also came to the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the land. In fact, when God comes and sees that they recognize that they're naked and they're ashamed of it, to clothe their own shame, what does he do? He gives them animal skins to cover them. Death was the penalty for their rebellion. And so what we see, the point that we want to make, and I have a slide up there for this, uh, Patrick and Aaron, is that when we rebel against our purpose to cultivate good in God's creation, then our potential he's created us with is then used to cultivate harm, destruction, death. And when the preacher sees this, and he sees that now we all share the same fate of death, us and the animals, we're no different than them under the sun now, then he starts surveying the land again and he starts looking at different areas of life that have been broken and that destruction and harm have been brought to with the potential of a wicked person. And so in chapter four, this is where I'm gonna need your help readers. In chapter four, we're gonna examine four different areas of life that the preacher looks at and says, this has been broken because we've abandoned our purpose and used our potential for harm. I have the privilege on Friday mornings with my wife to look at these six symbols with a group of high school students at a school, a charter school. It's not a Christian school, and so we have to be careful with the way we present it. But it's a leadership class, and what we're doing is we're using the framework of a story to teach them how to look at the world and to teach them how to look at situations and problem solve even. And so what we do is instead of using the word creation at the very beginning of a story, we just say it's the origin of a story. We talk about there's purpose and potential in everything. And we get to talk with these young men and women about our purpose as human beings to help bring flourishing and draw out the potential of the people and places around us. And it's beautiful conversations that we have. And then we talk about how conflict enters the story, and that's our, our ex-symbol of rebellion, right? And often that conflict is brought in because of the way we use our potential. And in fact, before I even got to be able to say that, one of the young men in the group, 16-year-old young man by the name of Raph said, you know what, sometimes we use that potential to do bad just as much as we do good. We use our potential for evil, he said. And this is a man who doesn't have a father or a mother at home, who is trying to wrestle through the realities of poverty, living with his grandma, who doesn't have a lot of friends at the school because he's a little socially awkward. And he's surveying the land and he recognizes we use our potential for some really terrible things. And this is what Koheleth, the preacher, sees too. And so in chapter four, if someone could read for me verses one through three, nice and loud so everyone could hear. 
Did you guys catch how bleak that sounds? You have the, the living person. Better than them is the dead person. Better than them is the person who was never born. Have you ever heard, or maybe you've been one of those people who have said something like, I just can't bring a kid into this world. I've sat down with a number of people who have said that statement. And I gotta be honest, it's really hard for me to try to convince them otherwise. I, I don't, I don't try, it's not my place to. But it's really hard for me to imagine why they should think otherwise. Because to say, when I look around and I see all the stuff wrong with this world, why would I bring a human being into it so that they could suffer? And that's kind of what the preacher's saying here too. He's looking back at that, the first two verses we read this morning, and the place of what should be is wickedness. But it's interesting that he says this. He says that neither, neither the righteous, I'm sorry, neither the oppressed or the powerful, neither of them have a comfort. He says, there's no one to comfort the tears of the oppressed. And he says, I look on the side of their oppressors, and there's their power, and there's no one to comfort them. What's interesting about this is this is a man who is part of the people of God, Israel, being formed and shaped by the story, who knows full well that there is a God who sees and a God who hears, right? That there is a God who sees and hears when we cry out, but he's wrestling with the realities of the day-to-day going, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like he's coming to our rescue. I know there's a promise and we're holding out for this rescuer to come, but when? When is that gonna happen? I look around and in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness, wickedness is there. What he says in that is that we, as God's creation, we were made to care for one another. We were made to care for others, but instead we use our potential to bring harm. And we don't comfort one another. Could someone read verses four through six, please? Thanks, Cindy. So he recognizes first we were made to care for one another, but instead we bring harm. And now he starts looking around and he's seeing people working and toiling. And he sees two extremes of how we have now abandoned our purpose for work. That though we were made to work, our work no longer fulfills us. The two extremes he sees are the one person who is striving after achievement, working hard all their days. And if you believe it, you can achieve it, right? And he looks at it and he goes, this is meaningless too. Like, what are they really earning for themselves? And not only that, but why are they doing it? They're doing it because they're envious of the person next to them who has more than they have. Isn't that the story of our culture? 
striving after getting the next best thing because my friend has it. My friend has the latest iPhone. I need that now. And he's saying they're, they're striving after the win, just two fists full of nothing at the end of the day. But there's the other extreme. Well, maybe then we shouldn't be working so hard, right? And maybe we should just like sit back and relax and make sure that other people's work can care for us. And we see that in our culture too, don't we? The entitlement, you owe me. But he says the fool that folds his hands to rest brings ruin upon himself. These are two extremes of what we've done with twisting our purpose for work that we were created for. Work was not a punishment in the garden. Work was given as a gift to the man and the woman at the very beginning. And it didn't become a punishment until they rebelled against their purpose. And he said, now when you work, it'll be through thorns and thistles and toil. Our next verse is 7 through 12. Who will read that for us? Uh, through 12, yeah. Thank you. So part of that section that Steve just read for us, you might recognize from maybe hearing at a wedding or something like that, right? Like two are better than one. And I think that, that, that's good. Like it's the only somewhat hopeful <laughs> piece of Ecclesiastes that people will draw from and quote often. And so it makes sense. But I think it goes much deeper than just a wedding verse that we can use. What he's, what he's revealing to us there is our need, our creational need for other people, for community. Let me ask you this. Uh, we, we were having this conversation, Wade and I, with our seminary class, our cohort, on Thursday mornings. And a statement was made, there is no such thing as an individual. There are persons, but no individual. And so, as, as an exercise to explain what that means, um, Tammy, yeah, sorry, I'm going to pick on you. Just start describing yourself. Tell us about who you are with just a couple words. Nice, I like it. Good. Any other, any roles in your life? You sound like a lovely person. Thank you. Yeah. Good, thanks for doing that. Obviously, every role that she mentioned requires that other people are present, right? But even if we go back to some of the first things she said, I'm silly, like, that 
is something that is often determined in relationship with other people. Like, if she just existed as an individual, how would she ever know that she's silly? Who would she be silly with? Who would ever say that about her? There's no way to describe yourself that isolates you from any other person on this planet. Everything about us is in regards to relationship, to other people. And yet, one of the biggest cultural idols of the U.S., of the West, is individualism. Right? You can do this for yourself. Just believe in yourself. You got to make yourself happy. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. All these things that have driven us as a society are focused on us as an individual and what I deserve and what I want. And what we've done is we have rebelled against our purpose for community. When God creates and he's looking at everything, he's going, this is good. I made that. That's good. This is good over here. The first thing he says is not good is what? That the man is alone. And so as I explain to my sons, he comes and he brings all these other creatures around them. But that wasn't fitting. And it wasn't until another person was given to him. Another person made in the image of God, just as he was. That God then said, this is very good. Because God himself exists in community the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's very good that we, made in his image, exist in community too. And what the preacher is doing is he's looking around and he's seeing people who have isolated themselves. And this was back in an, another culture and another time. How much more so us in our day and age where individualism has become the anthem of our country. And he's saying, this is not Okay. What we've done is we've abandoned our purpose because we were created for community and yet we isolate ourselves in our own selfishness. Three areas we've seen so far where abandoning our purpose God created us for have wreaked destruction and havoc on our world. Right? We see that first we were created to care for others but instead we bring harm. We see that we are created for work but our work no longer brings us satisfaction and fulfillment. We were created for community, for one another, and yet we often distance ourselves and isolate ourselves in our own selfish desires. There's one more. Who will read verses 13 through 16? Thanks, Bobby. So the preacher looks around and he goes, okay, listen, I do understand that there is a better way to live in this life than some other ways. Certain things are better than other things. 
And he uses, again, his ability to compare and contrast things. And he says, better a poor, wise youth, and then he goes backwards, than an old, foolish king. You see what he did there? So it's better for this youth than the old, better to be wise than foolish, better even poor than a king. He's contrasting three different areas right there. And you would look at those and go, well, on the surface level, one obviously seems better than the other. And so he's kind of playing with our heads a little bit going, you know what? Let me show you something different than what your eyes see. Better to be a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king. Why? Because this old foolish king, he says, no longer knows how to take advice. He's not teachable. He's arrogant, prideful. He's built up things for himself. I couldn't help but when reading this section of thinking about David and Saul, right? And likely the preacher in Ecclesiastes knows that story well, that David, this poor shepherd boy, who's been told you're supposed to be the king of Israel, but in humility waits for the day that God would appoint him. Even when he sees Saul doing all kinds of terrible deeds, and even when Saul tries to kill him, that David still subjects himself to that place of his authority. And so the author of Ecclesiastes is likely drawing on this imagery for us and going, listen, there is a way that's better to live under the sun than another way, of course. David became a king renowned throughout Israel. People would sing songs about David, right? And it drove Saul crazy. And so in, in the vein of the Proverbs, if typically if you do this, this will go well for you. He's saying there is some conventional wisdom. It's better to be this way than that way. But what does he end it with? But at the end of the day, he says, all those who come after them are not going to rejoice after them. He's dead. He's in the ground. Even us talking about King David here today, like, he's dead. He's in the ground. He doesn't hear it. He doesn't care. So what? What's the point? Is how he ends that. Good old Ecclesiastes, right? Best motivational speaker. Even when you do the right things, and even when you're teachable, and even when you're humble, and even when you live rightly in front of God, at the end of the day, does it really matter because you too will die? And why is that? Because we were created for a purpose that was eternal. But because we have rebelled against our purpose, and we've abandoned it, we now face the same fate, to go back to how he started this morning, we now face the same fate as every other creature on this earth under the sun. And so what does it matter anyway, right? So that's the end of our text. Do we leave it there? Do we go, well, it doesn't matter anyway. Go just do whatever you want to do and have fun. No, remember, the point of Ecclesiastes is he's wrestling with this tension in that period of history, in the third symbol of our story, where he's still awaiting the hope of redemption. And you and I are on the other side of that in history. We're in a timeline of that story. That fourth symbol, redemption, has come through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, who then sent his spirit, and now, 
The same spirit God breathed into the first man to have life, though he forfeited that by rebelling against God, that spirit left the animals and the humans, and they all die now. Jesus entered into this world by that spirit. Jesus did not stay in the grave in the death that you and I deserved and will experience one day because the spirit of God who gave life and sustains life for all eternity helped him get up and walk out of that tomb. And Jesus then says, I'm giving you that spirit, my spirit of power. I am sending to you those who will follow me. And so we get to look back at Ecclesiastes getting to see the next chapter, understanding more of the story. And we go, no, we know it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with going, it's all meaningless. It doesn't matter what you do right now, right? And oftentimes we get this view of salvation and Christianity as this is salvation, that Jesus died for your sins, so now you can go into heaven, right? I'm not not telling you that's wrong. What I'm telling you is this. The God who created all things under the sun and above it is on a mission to restore all things under the sun and above it. The gospel is so much bigger than our narrow view that we see it in oftentimes. Our sin, this is what Ecclesiastes is doing. He's painting a picture showing your sin is so much bigger than you think it is. It's not just that, oh, you lied, and so now mm, you're going to go to hell one day unless you repent and pray this prayer, Jesus will come accept you, and okay, now you can... Enjoy food, fun, and fellowship with this church until they die, and then you'll go sit on these clouds and play a harp for eternity, right? That's what I grew up believing. But he's saying, no, 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 no. Sin has wreaked havoc over all of creation, the animals we were supposed to care for, the planet we were supposed to care for, our relationship between one another and our relationship between us and God has been broken. That's how big sin is. And Jesus and his gospel, the good news, is even bigger, Because Jesus gets the last word, not death. And what Jesus did is he entered into the oppression, the toil, the loneliness, and the despair. Jesus enters into the oppression and he hangs out with the people nobody else would hang out with. He hangs out with the poor prostitutes that people looked at and they shunned in their society. And he welcomes them to the table with him. Jesus enters into the toil. He strives and works as a carpenter for 30 years before he starts his ministry preaching the good news. Why did he do that? Why didn't Jesus just come into the world one day as a fully grown man and die for us if that's all the gospel is? Jesus entered into all the realities of life under the sun and he worked Jesus entered into the loneliness. He says, even foxes have a place to lay their heads, but the son of man, he was a poor man traveling with not much. And even his close friends who spent day after day, night after night with him, the closest people to him, all abandoned him when Rome came to take him away. He entered into our loneliness. Jesus enters into the death that 
abandoning our purpose and rebelling against brought upon us. And he goes to the cross and he experiences it all. Why did he do that? Not just so that individuals can have their souls saved and free from hell. He did it to restore all of these things under the sun. And so now in the power of his spirit, who he did all these things by, you and I actually get to engage in all these different facets of life under the sun too. And we get to do it as a faithful witness, seeing that Jesus who came and entered into the story is coming back again one day too. And he will fully restore the kingdom so that there will never be oppression and toil and loneliness and death again. But instead, we will get to dwell with him in eternity, still working in community with one another, doing things for God's glory and his purpose. But he says, even here and now, I want you to tell that story. I want you to paint that picture. You have the power of the spirit to live this out now too. That just as I conquered sin and the grave and Satan, you too can be more than conquerors, as Paul writes in Romans. By the power of his spirit. That's the good news that we know on this side of the cross. And we're in a similar waiting period as the preacher in Ecclesiastes as he was waiting for that hope and redemption to come in Jesus, we are waiting for him to return and restore all things. And so how do we wrestle with this in the meantime? We look back to the fact that he did come and he broke into the story. We look forward to the hope that we know if he said he's coming back, he will, because he has upheld every single promise he's made so far. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, we trust that this story is true and yet we ask for forgiveness on the days and the moments where we live like it's not. We believe, Jesus, you are returning and that you came into this world and took on every bit of pain that we experience. Forgive us for those days and moments that we go about our work and our toil forgetting that reality. God, forgive us in the ways in which we have become oppressors without even realizing it when we have been called to care for your good creation. Forgive us for the ways in which we either strive to work to earn something for ourselves or just give up on work itself altogether. When you have created us for good works, that all we need to do is walk in, in the power of your spirit. Forgive us for isolating ourselves, holding ourselves as an individual above others around us, thinking that our needs matter more when you have created us for community and everything we do affects the people around us. Forgive us for living like one day we will die and none of this matters anyway when your spirit is alive and active even here and now. God, make us the people you created us to be. Shape us in that way. And we ask this in Jesus' name.